and uh, verse 25 of Genesis chapter 30, we read, And it came to pass, when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said unto Laban, Send me away, that I may go unto mine own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served thee, and let me go, for thou knowest my service which I have done thee. And Laban said unto him, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thine eyes, tarry. For I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. And he said, Appoint me thy wages, and I will give it. And he said unto him, Thou knowest how I have served thee, and how thy cattle was with me. For it was little with which thou hadst before I came, and it is now increased unto a multitude. And the Lord hath blessed thee since my coming. And now when shall I provide for mine own house also? And he said, What shall I give thee? And Jacob said, Thou shalt not give me anything. If thou wilt do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep thy flock. I will pass through all thy flock today, removing from thence all the speckled and spotted cattle, and all the brown cattle among the sheep, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and as such shall be my hire. So shall my righteousness answer for me in time to come, when it shall come for my hire before thy face. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the sheep, that shall be counted stolen with me. And Laban said, Behold, I would it might be according to thy word. And he removed that day the he-goats that were ring-streaked and spotted, and all the she-goats that were speckled and spotted, and every one that had some white in it, and all the brown among the sheep, and gave them into the hand of his sons. And he set three days' journey betwixt himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. And Jacob took him rods of green poplar and of hazel and chestnut tree, and pilled white streaks in them, and made the white appear which was in the rods. And he set the rods which he had pilled before the flocks in the gutters and the watering troughs, when the flocks came to drink, that they should conceive when they came to drink. And the flocks conceived before the rods, and brought forth cattle, ring-streaked, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob did separate the lambs, and set the faces of the flocks toward the ring-streaked, and all the brown in the flock of Laban, and he put his own flocks by themselves, and put them not unto Laban's cattle. And it came to pass, whensoever the stronger cattle did conceive, that Jacob laid the rods before the eyes of the cattle in the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods. And when the cattle were feeble, he put them not in. So the feebler were Laban's, and the stronger Jacob's. And the man increased exceedingly, and had much cattle, and maidservants, and menservants, and camels, and asses. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his precious and eternal word. Have you ever been homesick? 
It's a terrible feeling, homesickness, isn't it? If you've ever experienced it. You know, I remember uh, as a young man going off to France. I studied uh, in a summer school, in a Bible school in France one summer uh, at Grace Theological Seminary. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was fine. You know, I, I was mar- young, just married really. And uh, Hazel was left at home. The two children were left at home. And uh, off I went. And I think I went for about six weeks uh, and had this crash course uh, from Grace Theological Seminary, which is actually based in America, but had this extension program. And I was doing all right. I was occupied with my studies. I was enjoying uh, being around the other men who were in school there and, uh, and didn't really you know, give a second thought to it because I was focused on what I was doing. And then one day we had this uh, worship time just a, an informal time, and, and we sang Amazing Grace. But we sang Amazing Grace to the tune of the Londonderry air. Danny Boy, you know the, the Danny Boy tune? And my goodness, as soon as I heard it, my heart just dropped, and I was as homesick as could be. I could not wait for that course to finish and to get on the plane and to fly back and be with my family and be back where I uh, belong. You know, there were times when we lived in England that I was a little homesick. I'm sure Hazel was too. Sometimes, you know, try as you might, even though we lived there a long time, there were times when you felt out of place. You felt as a, like a foreigner. You know, you'd hear all these folks uh, around you who had grown up in that area and, you know, with their English accents and, and sometimes just longed uh, for home. And, and your ears would prick up. If you heard a Northern Irish accent, you know, if you were out and about Alton Towers or someplace and you heard a Northern Irish accent, your ears would prick up. And you always want to go over and introduce yourself <laughs> to total strangers for no other reason than that they came from Northern Ireland, just so as you could have a, a chat in your mother tongue, so to speak. And, and sometimes you missed the food. You know, sometimes you would just long to, to go into a wee cafe and sit down and have a good old Ulster fry with the soda bread and the potato bread and all that. Or you, missed the, you always missed the breads. That's the thing you missed. You missed the wheat and bread. Feed a bread. Oh, you know what? I used to fill my case full of feed a bread. If I came over here to preach on the way home, I stuffed feed a bread into my case. I'd bring it home. If they ever looked into it going out of the airport, they must have thought I was a bread smuggler or something. Uh, you know, and, and you miss all of these things. But most of all, you miss friends and you miss family, people you love, people with whom you've grown up, people who know your backstory, people with whom you're very uh, familiar. And so many times when I'd be flying in and out of the province, often preaching or teaching, I would come in uh, over Antrim and I'd look out at those green fields down beneath the aircraft as we were coming into land and I would think to myself, I'm home, I'm home. No matter where you are in the world, your home is always your home. And your homeland is always your homeland. And this was Jacob's realization in verse 25. Notice what it says. And it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said unto Laban, Send me away that I may go unto mine own place and to my country. He's longing for home. And this longing seems to have been magnified with the arrival of his 
a youngest son, Joseph. And we know that Joseph, being the firstborn of Rachel, was the blue-eyed boy in that family. He would be given that honored coat, that coat of many colors with which we're so uh, familiar. And, and so when this baby comes in the, into the world, I can imagine Jacob looking at this little boy and, you know, his heart is set upon him and he desires to show him off. He wants to go back and, and show his mom and his dad uh, to show them just what's happened and how God has blessed him and, and how he has all of these children and, and these wives and, and how he's been progressing since his parting from them. And, you know, really he just wants to share the joy of the Lord's blessing with his loved ones. And this heart sickness, of course, would have been a matter of natural affection. Uh, He does undoubtedly want to see his parents again. It's been 20 years. But he also has within him a sense of spiritual attraction. He wanted to go back to the land of promise. He wants to go back to the land that was covenanted to his father and to his grandfather, to the place which he calls mine own land, which he calls my own place, my own country. And notice then in verse 26, he comes and Jacob makes a request. Here's Jacob's request. He goes to Laban and he says, give me my wives and my children for whom I have served thee. And let me go, for thou knowest my service which I have done thee. And Laban said unto him, I pray thee, if I have found favor in thine eyes, tarry. For I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake. And he said, Appoint me thy wages, and I will give it. And he said unto him, Thou knowest how I have served thee, and how thy cattle was uh, with me. For it was little which thou hadst before I came, and now it's increased unto a multitude. And the Lord hath blessed thee since my coming. And now when shall I provide for my own house also? And he said, What shall I give thee? And Jacob said, Thou shalt not give me anything. If thou wilt do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep thy flock. I will pass through all thy flock today, removing from thence all the speckled and spotted cattle. My cattle's a general word for livestock. He's talking about sheep and goats. And all the brown cattle among the sheep, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and as such shall be my hire. So shall my righteousness answer for me in time to come, when it shall come for my hire before thy face, every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the sheep, that shall be counted stolen with me. And Laban said, Behold, I would it might be according to thy word. And he removed that day the he-goats that were ring-straked and spotted, and all the she-goats that were speckled and spotted, and every one that had some white in it, and all the brown among the sheep. And he gave them unto the hand of his sons. And he set three days' journey betwixt himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flock. So here's the story. Jacob has given 20 years of indentured service unto Laban. And he comes this day and he says to him, give me my wives and my children. Now, just look at that, that phrase, give me my wives and my children. Were they not already his? He says, give me my wives and my children for whom I have served, uh, served thee and, and let me go. Now, you, you know, we read that and we say, well, why didn't he just go? Why didn't he just pack his bags and, you know, put his little caravan trail together and, and head off? back toward Canaan land. Well, within the structure 
of the ancient Near Eastern world. That was not quite how things worked. There was shared ownership within a nuclear family, within a family circle. And in that respect, Laban actually had a share in his wives and his children's lives. They were considered to be his possessions just as much as they were Jacob's wives and Jacob's children. And so to leave without his father-in-law's permission would have been a a gross uh, misconduct with respect to that culture and that time. It would have been a matter of such hurt and damage that it would have created quite literally warfare within that family. And we'll see that in the following chapter when he finally uh, does sneak off uh, and uh, Laban chases him down. Uh, But to leave without his father-in-law say so would have been a great mistake. It would have put him and his wives and his children actually at risk in some kind of conflict or skirmish. So he has to ask permission. Give me my wives and my children. Let me go. But no sooner has he made this, let's face it, a fair and reasonable request, than Laban convinces him to hang on. You see, Jacob is important to Laban. In his in his experience, Jacob is important. In his knowledge of farming, Jacob is important. And above all, he's important because the blessing of God rests upon him. And with him comes that blessing uh, by extension onto Laban. And so whilst Jacob has been on Laban's farm, Laban's stock has increased mightily. Now, at face value, Laban's request seems fair enough. But understand something. First of all, Jacob doesn't belong in Mesopotamia. He belongs in Canaan land, the land of promise. And secondly, although Laban is acknowledging the Lord's blessing upon Jacob's life, he's really pulling a fast one. You see, Laban is a con man. He's a He's a, he's a shyster, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, a fraudster, a gangster, whatever you want to call him. And he doesn't want Jacob to stay so that he can enjoy the Lord's blessing. He doesn't care about the Lord's blessing one iota. He wants Jacob to stay because he recognizes that in Jacob, he is the recipient of material blessing. That his flocks are increasing. So when he says there, I have learned by experience in verse 27, understand that literally in the Hebrew he is saying, I have learned by divination. I have learned by divination. You know, that was his experience. It wasn't a case that he had made observation of Jacob's life and thought, well, you know, the Lord is with him. No, he had engaged with his idols in some way and inquired as to why his flocks were growing so rapidly. And in that respect, his idols had directed him to Jacob as the root of his blessing. And so when he says, the Lord hath blessed me for thy sake, don't be taken in. He's just using the language of Jacob. You know, Laban is a pagan. You'll see that in the next chapter when he comes crying about his idols that have been taken by Rachel. So he's really flattering Jacob. And he's really trying to speak the, speak the language of Jacob so as to impress upon them. He's much the same as a lost person who will say to you, you know, I wish I had your faith. You ever have somebody say that to you? Oh, I wish I had your faith. Or, you know, or, 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 you know, they say, well, I admire your faith. 
poppycock. If they admired your faith, they would have it. If they wished to have your faith, they would express it. You know, you think about it. Are we really giants of the faith? Are, are we such great believers that we become a standard to the world that the world looks at us and says, I wish I had their faith. Why in the end do they remain in unbelief? The Lord Jesus tells us you need just a little grain of mustard seed of faith. Just a littlest amount of faith. Friends, when I got saved, that's all I had was just a, a little amount of faith. I wasn't a champion of the faith. Even all these years later, I still wouldn't regard myself in those terms. Now, when a person says to you, you know, I really admire your faith. Oh, I wish I had your faith. Understand something. They're flattering you. They're flattering you. There's insincerity in those words. And Laban was that way. Uh, Though... Perhaps he knew something of God. Uh, nevertheless, Laban has become something of a, of a mystic. His religion mingles a little bit of what, Lab, what Jacob believed and a, a lot of what Laban believed. He mixed truth with error. And in fact, it was an ancient form of ecumenism. Indeed, we find this very mixed throughout the history of Christianity on this island. When Irish Christians embraced pagan practices and incorporated them into their worship. We see that even today, you know, just a few weeks ago, there was in this very village a lecture given on the history of water divining. And uh, that's an old superstitious uh, practice. Uh, And yet it's been given vent to even in this modern era. And sometimes Christians uh, put their faith in water divining. My friends, that's, that's Laban. On the one hand, he names the name of the Lord. On the other hand, he's practicing paganism. Nevertheless, Laban does make a seemingly generous offer in verse 28. He says, appoint me thy wages and I will give it. He says to, he says to Jacob, look, just name your price. How much should I pay you in order for you to stay? Tell me how much you want. Can I say to you this morning that many a man has been sidetracked from the things of God by similar words. Give me your price. Tell me what it is you're looking for and I'll pay it. You know, I remember, and I think I've shared this before, I was a young man and I was going into ministry. I was a draftsman. Uh, I was surprisingly, uh, you know, highly regarded by my boss, by the director of the company. I think he was actually mistaken, but nevertheless, he seemed to put some stock in me and uh, he appreciated my time with his company. And so when I told my immediate boss that I was leaving and I gave in my notice, uh, he went and spoke to the director and I was invited down to speak to the director of the company. And I went into this man. He was a lovely man. He was an Englishman, very kind man in many respects. And uh, he says to me, I hear you're leaving us. And I said, yes. He says, I hear you're going into the ministry. I said, yes. He says, which ministry is it? Is it the ministry of defense or the ministry of justice? Or, or this ministry or that ministry? And then he says, tell me what they're paying you. He says, and I'll give you more. <laughs> if I'd known, known that, it went down there ages ago. Uh, but nevertheless... Tell me what they're paying you and I'll, I'll give you more. And I was kind of, you know, I was kind of taken aback that, you know, here he was trying to, it seemed to me, buy me back and, and get me off track. And I said, no, not any of those ministries. I'm going into the gospel ministry. I said, in fact, they're paying me less. 
And then he was very apologetic. He realized his mistake and he was very apologetic and that was the end of the conversation. Uh, but understand, you know, it's not, it's not just preachers who hear the devil's offer, name your praise. Sometimes those of you who are in the pew hear that offer and because of that offer, some will work on Sundays. You know, your boss will come and say, well, it's triple time if you come and work on Sundays or we can make more money if, we only, if you'll only work on Sundays and, and the devil holds out the offer. Forget the church. Just get into work and make some money. Take care of your business. Some people miss midweek meetings for the same reason. Should be a church in midweek. The Bible says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves as the manner of some is. That's an assembly of the church. It's not like the other meetings which are specialized meetings. It's not like the ladies meeting or the men's meeting or the youth meeting. Listen, when the church gathers together as a church, you're supposed to be here. And the devil will come along and say, you know, you don't want to do that. You don't want to waste a Wednesday night. You know, you could make some money in a Wednesday night. Name your price. What are you willing to do? Others will resign from office and position in churches in order to pursue business, to pursue career. Friends, that's the devil's temptation. Uh, that's the devil's trial. Name your price. Name your wages. Remember this. Though if you're tempted that way, the devil is always a bad paymaster. Look across the page in chapter 31 and verse 7. Notice Laban's testimony after he agrees, or sorry, Jacob's testimony after Laban, after he agrees with Laban to work for him, he says to his wives, and your father hath deceived me and changed my wages ten times. Laban was untrustworthy. Laban was a dishonest man. The devil's a liar. And he says to you, name your price. Don't think for one moment you're going to come out in profit. That that's a gain for you. That's a loss for you. You think about it. If I had said to my boss all those years ago, what, you're going to pay me more? I didn't know that. I'll just stay here another few years. And maybe another few years after that. And maybe I'd never have gone into ministry. And I'd never be here today. And you would not have me here preaching to you this morning. Why, the devil would have fooled me. And he would have robbed God's church of a minister. And and that's the way the devil works. No, he's a bad paymaster. So Jacob reminds Laban of his worth in verses 29 and 30 of this chapter. He says, you know I've served thee and how thy cattle was with me. He says, you had very little when I came and you've got a lot now. The Lord has blessed you since my coming. And now I just want to go and set up my own home. I wonder if you said that to your employer, would he recognize that testimony? I wonder if you could go to your employer tomorrow morning and you were to say to him, listen, I I believe the Lord has blessed you with me since I've come to this place. I, I believe that I've been an asset to your company. I believe that I have contributed greatly uh, to your business. I I wonder would he recognize that. Can you say this morning as an employee that you have worked hard wherever you are and that God has blessed you? This is an important confession uh, from Jacob for he's beginning to understand the place and the importance of the blessing of God upon his life. Later on he's going to wrestle with God. 
to secure his blessing. But for the moment, he's learned two secrets with respect to God's plan for work. First of all, God calls us to work hard and to work for him. Remember this when you go to work tomorrow morning. You're not working for the man who's sitting alone in his office looking out over you. You're not working for the person who's further up the chain or even to, for the owner of the company. You're serving the Lord in that place. You're working for the Lord there. Look in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And look at verse 5 through 8 of this chapter. Paul says to the Ephesian believers, both servants and masters, that they are to remember who they belong to, to remember the glory of the Lord. And he says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart. Notice, as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with God, with good will, doing service as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. He's telling them, look, that what you do, you do unto Christ. What you do, you do unto God. What you do, you do for the name of Jesus. Don't forget that tomorrow. People are looking at you in your office and they're making judgments about your Savior based upon your conduct, based upon your attitude, based upon your work ethic. I had a a boss many years ago. He was a a professing Christian man and sometimes we would go out on business together and and we'd go and survey building sites up in Londonderry on one particular occasion. I remember it well. Uh, we drove up there in the company car and uh, we did what we had to do and we had finished a little bit early. It was a beautiful sunny summer's day and uh, on the way back, uh, you know, he looked at his watch and he says, we're going to get back early. He says, uh, he says you know, let's just, let's just slow up a little bit. We'll, we'll not drive so fast. And so he, he drove a little bit slower and then he saw uh, these two hitchhikers. He pulled over, he asked them where they were going. They said they were going to Dungannon. Now we were going uh, north of Belfast. If you're going to Belfast, north Belfast from Londonderry, you don't normally go through Dungannon. So he says, get in, we'll give you a lift. So we had two strangers in the company car, giving them a lift en route to Dungannon. He dropped them off. He says, that took up a little more of our time. And then he continued on in a snail's pace. My friends, what does that say? Imagine if I were an unsaved man. What would that have said about that fellow and his testimony? What would it have said about his ethic? What would it have said about his faith, about his Savior? You can understand, the Bible says that everything we do, we're to do unto the glory of God. Whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. That's the first lesson that Jacob learned. Yes, he was working for a fraudster. Yes, he was working for a con artist. Yes, he was working for a dishonest man. But you know what he did? He gave his heart to it. Why? Because he was serving the Lord. Then secondly, understand this is the second thing that Jacob picked up was that even though you are 
serving this individual and you're doing it in the name of the Lord, you should always praise him for any prosperity that might come your way. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I want to encourage you this morning, you know, to think about your own blessings, your own personal economy, how the Lord is providing for you. You know, I know it's difficult times and we're in the midst of an energy crisis and prices of gas and electricity and, and petrol and so on are going up. Mortgages perhaps are rising and so on. But understand that at the root of all of our needs, the Lord is there. Look in verse 11 of Deuteronomy chapter 8. He tells the Israelites, Beware that thou forget not the Lord God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and art full. Notice that. And has built goodly houses. You know, there's not one of us here this morning, I don't believe, that is here on an empty stomach. There's not one of us that isn't going to leave this building in a little while and go home to a a nice warm meal. There's not one of us, actually, who doesn't have a lovely home to go to, regardless of where we live. God says when you get there, when you're fed, when you look at your home, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all thy hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up that thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew uh, not, that he might humble thee and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou say in thine heart, my power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. That's the danger, isn't it? To say, I'm a self-made man. Look how hard I've worked. Look how I've studied. Look how I've made my degree work for me. Look how my education has paid off. You see what I've done. Look at the lovely house that I've built. Look at the lovely home that I have. Look Look at the lovely clothes that I wear. Look at the nice school my child goes to. You can say all of these things, but God says this in verse 18. Thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. Well, Laban says to Jacob, name your price. And he says, and again, what shall I give thee? Now we know that records of that time reveal that a shepherd uh, was given as a reasonable wage at at 20% of the increase of the flock. So if the flock increased, the shepherd was given 20%, one in five for himself. But Jacob isn't interested in that. Instead he has a very different proposal. Now the last time Laban had asked Jacob to name his price. What happened? Well, he ended up married to the wrong bride. Remember that? And yet he's prepared to do business with him again. He's going to make this mistake a second time. So he suggests that he be allowed then, rather than taking 20% of the flock, that he be allowed to keep any of the speckled animals, any of the striped animals, any of the striped goats, uh, any of the speckled sheep, uh, any of the brown sheep that may come through Laban's flock. Now understand, this is, this is going to be going to blow your mind when I tell you this, but most sheep in that part of the world are white. That's really got you this morning, hasn't it? 
They were white. Uh, most of the, most of the uh, sheep were pure white. Most of the goats are black. Speckled animals are rare. Brown sheep are rare. And so Laban couldn't believe his ears. He thought to himself, I'm, I'm landed. This fellow wants the spotted sheep. He wants the, he wants the speckled sheep. He wants the, he wants the brown sheep. I can't believe it. You know, talk about your boat coming and he thinks to himself, I'm going to get more work out of him for nothing. And so, you know, just as Jacob had paid too great a price in securing his bride, now Laban thinks he's asking too little a price for giving yet further work to him. But Jacob believed that the wrong against him would be vindicated. In fact, he tells us in the next chapter that the Lord directed him in this decision. And in verse 33, he says, so shall my righteousness answer for me in time to come. He says, I'm going to be vindicated. I'm going to prove to you that you're wrong and that I'm right. So Jacob was willing literally to start with nothing. And he himself separated the speckled sheep and the and the and the and the brown sheep from the and the striped goats from the rest of the herd. And he says, "Now, Laban, these are all yours, and I'll just work with the solid-colored white sheep and the and the black goats." And here's the deal: if these white or black goats produce any speckled or striped animals, they're mine. But if they produce solid-colored animals, they're yours. In other words, he was willing to start with nothing. You know, there's something to be said for anyone who's willing to start at the bottom and work their way up, isn't there? You know, uh, many people, and, and I think you'll agree with me, many people in our society today feel entitled. They feel like they should be given for nothing. You know, I remember meeting a young man and you know, he left school early. He had, you know, he had not attended school like he should have done. Uh, he made a profession of faith. He came to church for a while. He said to me one day, Pastor, would you help me get a job? Well, he has no education to speak of. He doesn't have a single uh, GCSE to his name. Nothing. And uh, I said, well, I'll do my best for you. So I, you know, I, I spoke to some of the men in church and one of the men in church said, well, I'll help him. He says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take him into my shop and I'll, I'll give him an apprenticeship. So I saw that man the following week. I said, how's he getting on? He says, he left after the first day. I said, he left? Oh, he says, it wasn't for him. I couldn't believe my ears. So the young fellow came to me a, a day or two later. He says, no, no. He says, that's not the kind of job I want. He says, he says could you get me another job? I says, well, it's going to be tough, but I'll do my best. So I got him another job, would you believe? Don't come to me looking for jobs, by the way. I'm not usually this good. But I got him another job from another member of the church. And uh, he went to work with this fellow. And so I asked him, how's he getting along? He says, he left after the first day. He left after the first day. He came to me a third time. He says, Pastor, would you get me a job? He must have thought I was the Department of Work and Pensions. I looked at him. I said, I've got you two jobs. And you left after 24 hours. 
How in the world am I going to get you a third job? Here's what I suggest you do. I suggest you go down to McDonald's there and you speak to them kindly and you ask them if they'll give you a job and you can flip burgers down there. Oh, he says, I don't want to flip burgers. It was beneath him. Thought he was too good for it. You know, he wanted it. It seemed like he wanted a big wage in a company car for doing nothing. On the other hand, I knew another young man who did flip burgers. Went to Burger King. It's a teenager. And flipped burgers night and day. Worked in the drive-thru. Took all of the grief of, of the customers and all the problems on his shoulders. And you know what? Burger King put him through college. And they sent him to university. In the end, he did an open university course and he got a degree in, uh, in personnel management. And he went on and became a, an HR manager, a human resources manager. And, and now he works for major companies. You know, he's, he's driving a flash car. He's, he's got a lovely home. He's living a wonderful life. Do you know what? I don't envy him any of that. I say, bless God, the young fellow was willing to start from the bottom and work his way up. And that's what Jacob was willing to do. He didn't think I'm entitled to Laban's sheep. I've served you 20 years. Give me a pile of sheep and I'll be on. No, 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 he said. Tell you what, he says, I'll start with nothing. And I'll work my way up and see what the Lord does. You know, there's such a thing as the so-called Protestant work ethic. You know, that's a misnomer if ever there was one. Let me tell you, having lived in, in North Belfast, I saw a lot of Protestants who wouldn't lift a finger. Didn't work, neither wanted to work. Protestant work ethic, my eye. But there is such a thing as a Christian work ethic. A Christian ought to work. A Christian ought to provide for his family. In fact, the Bible says if a Christian doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an infidel. Worse than an unbeliever. And so Jacob shows us this, uh, this ethic, this work ethic. And he knows that God is never going to bless idle hands. And so he throws himself into it. And Laban, delighted by Jacob's proposal, declares, Behold, I would it might be according to thy word. Whatever you say, Jacob, happy days. He was certain he got the best part of the deal. But just to be sure, Laban being Laban did three things. He separated the speckled sheep and the, and the brown sheep and striped goats from the solid colored ones himself. He wouldn't let Jacob do it. He placed his son in charge of those peculiarly colored animals. And he had them led three days away so that Jacob could not interfere with them. In other words, he stacked the cards against Jacob. He significantly reduced the chances of Jacob's success. You see, here's the thing about Laban. Laban was himself untrustworthy. And you know what? Untrustworthy people by nature find it difficult to trust other people. They judge others by their own rotten standards. Well, if you look in verses 37 to 43, you see Jacob's riches. So now Jacob is left looking at a flock of solid white sheep, solid black goats with not a speckled sheep or striped goat anywhere to be seen. And what happens next is really interesting. He takes these branches of, uh, of the uh, hazel and the chestnut and the poplar tree. He removes the bark from these 
little branches and he puts them into the feeding troughs of the animals when they are feeding and when they're watering. Now, if you were to look this passage up in a commentary, many of them will tell you that what Jacob was doing here was a superstitious practice, that he was involved in some kind of prenatal stimuli. That he thought that the animals, upon seeing these striped branches, would then produce, that they would be influenced to produce striped and streaked and speckled animals. However, I think you've got to give the man some credit here. Remember this, he's about 90 years of age at this point. What has he been doing all of those years of his life? From the time virtually he was a little boy till now, he has been a farmer. And he's been a sheep farmer. And he knows sheep. He knows sheep better than anyone. His father was a farmer before him and his grandfather before that. So they know sheep. He knows goats. He knows a thing or two about farming. He's either very superstitious or else he's incredibly smart. And actually, I think we, give, we don't give enough credit to people of ancient times. I think they're a lot smarter than we give them credit for. And, and actually, I think what you're possibly seeing here is the first example of genetic engineering in history. There's a clue in this passage as to what Jacob was doing, which we'll see in a moment. Uh, But his actions are still practiced to this day in some parts of the world. You see, by adding those striped branches into the animal trough, Jacob was effectively doing this. He was placing an additive into their water. And he may have lived 4,000 years ago, but he knew a thing or two about chemistry and biology. Now, he, he may not have been able to write out the formula, but he knew a little thing about chemistry and he knew a little something about biology. He had observed some things and he knew that if he would add this material to the water, he would increase the possibility of these animals birthing. In other words, he added an aphrodisiac to the water. Look at verse 38. It says, He set the rods which he had pilled before the flocks in the gutters in the watering troughs when the flocks came to drink that they should, now notice this word, conceive. That they should conceive when they came to drink. Now that word conceive literally means to be in heat. In other words, he increased the possibility of them breeding and reproducing. And simple logic says this, the more lambs that you have, the the greater the chance of the recessive gene that created speckled and striped creatures coming to the fore. This is called in science the Mendelian law. And when he had, when he had a few of those speckled sheep and a few of those uh, striped goats, he could concentrate his efforts on those few and he could build his own flocks. And that's exactly what he did. Verse 43 says, And the man increased exceedingly and had much cattle and maidservants and menservants and camels and asses. In other words, he became incredibly wealthy. Now, in the light of all that we've just read, I want you to understand why he was a wealthy man. He wasn't a wealthy man just because he was a capable farmer. He wasn't a wealthy man because he understood something of chemistry and biology or genetics. 
He wasn't a, he wasn't a wealthy man because actually in the end he outwitted his crafty uncle Laban. He was a wealthy man because he was the heir of the Abrahamic covenant. That's why he was a wealthy man. And what does that covenant promise Abraham's descendants? A place. And that's what Jacob spoke of when he spoke of my own place, my country. He says, I have a promise out there that I want to lay hold on. What does the Abrahamic covenant promise? It promises a seed, a people. Jacob came into Laban's farm, a single man. He leaves Laban's farm with four wives and 12 children. What does the Abrahamic covenant promise? It promises prosperity. What was the last line we read there? And the man increased exceedingly. Jacob's plan worked out not because of Jacob's genius, but because of God's faithfulness. He received everything the Lord had promised to him. Now I want you to get this, because the exact same thing is true of us. In Christ we have And will have everything that God has promised us. God never reneges on his promises. He's promised us total forgiveness. Listen, we have total forgiveness. He's promised us eternal life. We have, we possess eternal life. He's promised us a heavenly home. That home is ours just beyond the river. Listen, he's promised us life abundant. He's promised us acceptance in the beloved. He's he's promised us joy unspeakable. He's promised us the comfort of God, the peace of God that passes all understanding. These are our promises in Christ. Listen, they're ours. They belong to us. And our God is faithful even when we, like Jacob, prove to be at times unfaithful. Everything we have has come by way of his blessing. And we have far more to be thankful for than we ever realized. Jacob was on a journey and he had a great deal more to learn. But listen, we too are on a journey. We're disciples. Disciples by nature are learners. You know, all of us should have a big L put on our backs. We're learners. We're followers. And if you learn nothing else from this little episode this morning, learn this. God always keeps his promises. His word is always sure. His character is always faithful and he is always true. We have received and we will receive everything he has covenanted to us in Christ. All the promises of Christ, those great and precious promises, are yea and amen in him. And friends, let's never forget that. We're a blessed and privileged and promised people. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning. We're going